For several weeks now, we've been working our way through Jesus' most famous collection of teachings, what's often called the Sermon on the Mount. And though the reasons for that themselves are numerous, they all begin with this idea of apprenticeship, something Tab mentioned just uh, moments ago. That is, at Van City, we believe that disciples of Jesus, both 2,000 years ago and today, this evening, are apprentices to a teacher. The vision for our church in particular at Van City is that together we might learn, like Tab said, to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus over time, and to do the things that Jesus did. Perhaps the best source on how this is done is Jesus' most famous collection of teachings, his manifesto for life in what he called the kingdom of God, the Sermon on the Mount. Now, if you recall, if you've been around, Jesus has just proclaimed to his disciples that his purpose is to fulfill the Mosaic law of the Old Testament rather than to abolish it. So to explain what he means, Jesus then employs six examples of legal code found in the Old Testament, drawing his disciples' attention to the heart of God that's behind each instance of law. So, for example, Jesus says, the law in the Old Testament, the Mosaic Code, the Torah, says don't kill people. But I'm telling you, don't stop there. The idea is that you wouldn't even be angry with people in the first place. Murder is just an outgrowth of anger, of resentment, of bitterness. So I, Jesus, say to you, live at peace with one another. Don't even get angry with each other. He goes on, the law says don't cheat on your wife. But I'm telling you that if you objectify women, you're already guilty of cheating. So you should honor women, take radically drastic measures to rid yourselves of lust altogether. And then Jesus is going to go on. Tonight's teaching, the next, is ferried on the one that came just before it. So having just warned his disciples about the horrific consequences of lust, the objectification of women, which leads to adultery, Jesus goes on with a bit more to say about marriage and fidelity. So with that in mind, let's look at Matthew chapter 5 and read beginning in verse 31. Jesus says, It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is, you know, just another encouraging, palatable, not at all provocative teaching from Jesus of Nazareth. But when you read something that seems so stark and so black and white on the page, you have to ask the question, well, what does this mean exactly? If the Old Testament allows for divorce, as seems to be the case from Jesus' quotation, is Jesus abolishing that allowance? Is there really only a single justifiable ground for divorce? And if that's the case, what is it? What is sexual immorality exactly? Well, let's take uh, these two verses one line at a time and try to work it out. As in the two examples that preceded this one, which were anger and then lust, Jesus begins with, it has been said. And then what follows in this case is a bit different. Whereas in the quotes before, Jesus quotes a specific line of the Old Testament. Here he says, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. And interestingly, there's actually no sayings to support this citation from Jesus. Meaning, earlier when Jesus prefaces his teaching on anger and lust with the phrase, you've heard it said, he then cites a very specific passage, or in some cases, passages from the Torah. What his Jewish audience understood to be the law and what we know as the first five books of the Old Testament. In this case, there's no such phrase having to do with divorce and divorce certificates. Instead, Jesus is referring to a single regulatory law that appears in Deuteronomy 24. 
If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, and if after she leaves his house and she becomes the wife of another man, and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, or if he dies, then her first husband has divorced her, and then it goes on and on with some, some really weird qualifications about what can and can't happen. Now, this is the only passage in the Torah that says anything about divorce at all, and it isn't concerned with the rightness or the wrongness of divorce per se, but only with the aftermath of divorce that has already taken place. But it does have this really weird phrase just at the beginning that is, um, if he finds something indecent about her, what in the world does this mean? <laughs> what does it mean for a husband to find something indecent about his wife? Well, the word here in Hebrew that's translated in a lot of your Bibles as something indecent is actually just as tricky in English as it is in Hebrew. And as a result, there's been much debate that's resulted from how to understand that term, both in the first century and tonight. So according to prevailing first century Jewish thinking, there were a great number of reasons on which any given husband might build a case for divorcing his wife. None of them required any sort of legal action, um, and they never involved the wife's decision whatsoever. It was just the husband's choice. A woman was given no right whatsoever to initiate divorce herself in the ancient world. So remember, Jesus is a Jewish rabbi, and he's doing the somewhat predictable work of offering his own rabbinic interpretation of the Old Testament. Now, among Jewish rabbis, the famous ones in Jesus' day, there was a well-known dispute surrounding the concept of divorce in Deuteronomy 24, but it wasn't around the legitimacy of divorce because everyone assumed that divorce was a legitimate option. The dispute was over what exactly were the permissible grounds for divorce. So in this sense, Jesus isn't quoting that passage from Deuteronomy 24 at all. He's referring to something that that passage infers in order to comment on a popular debate in his day. So many famous rabbis worked this out quite differently, what exactly something indecent meant. Uh, one famous rabbi called Rabbi Shammai, for example, argued that something indecent referred to adultery and that was it. That was the only uh, valid grounds on which a husband might divorce his wife. That was the conservative take. The liberal take came from someone called Rabbi Hillel, on the other hand, and it taught that a man might divorce a wife for preparing dinner incorrectly was one reason that he cited. Um, Rabbi Akiba, who was in the Rabbi Hillel camp, believed that finding a preferable wife to the one you already had was reason enough to dismiss the one that you had currently. Now, we think that the latter two arguments, the idea that you could divorce over a dinner that you didn't like or just because you found someone else, we think that those were the prevalent take on divorce in Jesus' day, the view that the permissible grounds were broad, to say the least. Uh, in fact, one famous Jewish historian, Josephus, mentions this in his work, uh, saying this, At this time I sent away my wife, being displeased with her behavior. Then I took as a wife a woman from Crete. Later he writes uh, in his, his, his history, The man who wishes to, divorce, to be divorced from his wife for whatever cause, and among people many such may arise, must certify in writing. If she does not accept your control, divorce her and send her on her way. Now it's into this popular thinking that Jesus announces his teaching on divorce. And to do so, Jesus doesn't cite a specific passage in the Old Testament as much as he is summarizing a prevailing notion amongst his audience. So a contextual means of translating Jesus' words might be something like, you've heard it said, 
anyone who divorces his wife must simply give her a certificate of divorce. That is, Jesus isn't simply citing Moses. He's articulating the laxity that's been applied to divorce in his day. And rather than build this really detailed case for the complexity of divorce and a really controversial topic, Jesus simply takes a side. He says, Rabbi Hillel and Rabbi Akiba are wrong. I'm with Rabbi Shammai. Something indecent means adultery. It does not mean anything at all. Later in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus will get pressed once again about marriage and divorce, and he will actually give a detailed take on the permissible grounds for divorce, but that's not what he's up to in the Sermon on the Mount. Here, Jesus is questioning the dominant thinking that divorce might be acceptable in the first place. And the point is the same as in the teachings that preceded this one. Jesus is drawing his disciples' attention back to the heart of God behind the legal code of the Old Testament. If you recall our conversation around Jesus' declared purpose to fulfill rather than to abolish the law, then remember that the law itself, the legal code of the Old Testament, is not God's full, realized, truest vision for humanity. Instead, the law is something that's given to disobedient Israel to lead them back toward God's true desire for his people. Thus, for example, we, as modern disciples of Jesus, do not obey Levitical law, but not because Jesus has abolished the Levitical law. He says it was bad, let's throw it out. But because Jesus is leading us back to the heart of God behind the law, God's original vision for human flourishing. So when you read the Old Testament, in particular the Torah, the first five books, some of the law looks more like God entering into Israel's brokenness to establish restrictions and boundaries around their behavior. Other parts of the law look more like the familiar heart of God that we see throughout the text. But in any event, Jesus is making very plain the expectations over anyone who would become his disciples. And if you remember, I use this analogy of a parent who wants to grant their kids freedom to play outside without restrictions of any kind. Just enjoy outside because that's what I want, that's what you want, go for it. But the disobedient children keep wandering into the road so the parent confines them to the yard. Okay, well, you won't behave safely, so just stay in the yard. And the children won't obey the restrictions around the yard, so the parent confines them to a fenced-in area that's really tiny in the backyard. The fenced-in area is kind of like the law. It's not God's best. It's not his original vision. But it's a means of leading his people back to obedience. Given the fact that in the ancient world, it was always the man's prerogative to divorce his wife without legal action of any kind, and as we've seen in the uh, history that we've just read, you could do it over just about anything, the outcome of such a decision was essentially the woman being thrown out of her home onto the street. So Moses, in the Old Testament, he gives them a certain accommodation to divorce, which is a certificate, and it is a response to Israel's sin. It's a provision for the women in question. The certificate of divorce was something like a permission slip to remarry, and in doing so, it provided the woman with a new home, potentially. She could get married, and she wouldn't end up on the street. So Moses is saying, listen, if you're going to divorce in your brokenness, at least give her a certificate so that she stands a chance at remarriage. Otherwise, she could resort to a life of prostitution. She could die in poverty. If she doesn't have a family, she could starve to death, and she will end in disgrace. And Jesus is arguing that to understand Moses and the whole certificate thing as happily blessing divorce was an egregious misunderstanding of God's heart. Scholar R.T. France puts it this way, Jesus' quarrel with current ethical teaching is that it is basing its standards on an assumption of failure. Moses' provision only for your hard-heartedness. 
rather than on God's original purpose for marriage. So Jesus is saying, look, all this dialogue and debate surrounding the permissible grounds for divorce are rooted in Israel's brokenness in the first place. It's not God's heart for marriage, meaning the law surrounding divorce and its certificates and accommodations to brokenness are not the point. God's heart is that no one would be divorced at all. But interestingly, we notice that Jesus does insert a single clause into his acceptable ground for divorce. He says, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries divorced women commits adultery. Now, most of your Bibles render that clause as it's done here as sexual immorality. Another translation could be something like sexual unfaithfulness in some of your Bibles. The noun here in Greek is this word porneia, and it's a word that was known for a wide usage that covered a variety of sex acts that violate God's good design and purpose for sexuality. So given that the, uh, Jesus uses the word porneia to describe the one permissive grounds for divorce, we're presented with a bit of a dilemma. The word has no straightforward English translation at all, Porneia, which is where we get the English word pornography, was a bit of a junk drawer term that was employed throughout the New Testament in the ancient world that can describe a variety of sexual sin. And in this particular context, scholars argue that a better interpretation might be sexual sins that break down the marriage covenant. More on that idea of covenant in just a bit. But the idea of the broken covenant was perhaps more comparable to our modern concept of annulment. A marriage already destroyed by the act of adultery was not so much a divorce, which was a man's voluntary dismissal of his wife. It was a formal and necessary recognition that the original marriage no longer existed because a new sexual union had dissolved the original one. So in this sense, Jesus is forbidding the voluntary breaking of a marriage that has not been dissolved by unfaithfulness. And he goes on. When a marriage is voluntarily dissolved, Jesus says, the husband causes the wife to become, quote, a victim of adultery. And the meaning here is twofold in the sense that, one, if a husband dismisses his wife and either he or she remarries, they are both now placed in adulterous relationship as the original marriage remains binding according to God. And two, if a marriage is terminated, even though there's no adultery, the husband essentially brands the wife as an adulteress, though she has done no wrong and she's meant to live with those consequences and he doesn't. So she becomes the victim of adultery. Of course, either way, any way you slice it, with or without the clause, I realize that Jesus' words here are stark and perhaps a tad shocking. But it's important to note that Jesus does not intend to here offer an in-depth theological essay on divorce and remarriage. He'll actually get into that later in chapter 19, so look forward to that. Instead, he acknowledges and weighs in on a raging debate of his time. When is it okay to divorce? Or put another way, is Deuteronomy 24 referring to adultery or is it referring to anything at all? And Jesus says, quite simply, I'm with Rabbi Shammai. It refers, it refers to adultery, not to anything at all. Now, before we get into exactly how you and I are to understand Jesus' words here tonight, I want us to try to wrap our minds around the grounds on which he makes these very challenging claims. It has a bit to do with marriage. It has a bit to do with you and God. And to understand both of those, we need to talk about this idea of a covenant. See, in the story of the Bible, a covenant 
is a unique sort of partnership that God establishes with certain people at certain times. In it, God makes specific promises to his covenant partners, and in turn, he asks for and expects their commitment and their faithfulness to him. This happens four times in the Old Testament. God initiates covenants with Noah, with Abraham, with Israel, and with King David. And the interesting thing to note here is that in a covenant, Yahweh, the Creator God, promises to be faithful even though humanity will fail in holding up their end of the bargain, in sickness and in health, as long as we both shall live till death do us part, sort of thing. One scholar summarizes God's, God's pledged faithfulness this way. My own way of framing covenant love is to use three propositions, that God covenants to be with us and to be for us unto full redemption. That is, until we are in the kingdom, are Christ-like, and become the holy and loving people of God. This covenant understanding of love means marital love reflects God's love, which means a divorce destroys the reflection of the God who is utterly faithful. Sadly, the same misunderstanding of God's covenant love has eclipsed much of our thinking of marriage, which is this. Covenant has been replaced with contract. Whereas the Bible presents God's loving faithfulness as a covenant with His people, many down throughout the history of the church, beginning in particularly with the Reformers, have instead framed this unique dynamic in contractual terms. And this is simplistic, but it might go something like this. The idea is that, man, you suck, you're awful, God has to kill you. <laughs> but Jesus jumps in front of you and goes, no, Dad, kill me instead. And so God makes this deal. Okay, listen, I'll kill Jesus instead of you, but only if you sign here, and if not, you're screwed. In the same way, many of us, as ridiculous as that sounds, approach marriage with, either in theory or in practice, with the same misplaced paradigm, where we step into it thinking, listen, I'll do this just as long as you do your part, and if you fail in making me happy, if you fall from grace, if you break contract, then I'm out. And this understanding is nothing new, as we've already seen. It permeated much of Jewish thinking prior to Jesus. And so, in steps this controversial, charismatic rabbi to say, listen, when you make marriage into a contract and consequently focus on what qualifies for a breach of said contract, then you misunderstand Yahweh's purpose for marriage, which is a covenant, not a contract. In the same way that God is faithful to his covenants, you, disciples of Jesus, are to do likewise. Uh, my wife, Abby, and I, she's right there, uh, uh, will have our 10-year anniversary in November. While, and we certainly have so much to learn and so much growing and maturing to do together still, me more so than her. Um, but even so, you can't help but learn a thing or two when you've been married for a decade. And one thing that I've learned and I think that we've learned together is this. Had either Abby or myself opted for our pervasive cultural notion that individual happiness and safety and comfort were the ultimate ends to our lives, we would have easily abandoned ship on marriage more than a few times and probably a few years in. Because the cultural narrative is we must always follow our hearts, you know. Do what makes you happy. Be true to ourselves. Abolish anything and everything that stands in the way of your perfect little bubble of safety and safe people and safe ideas and comfort and stability all the time. Or in the words of Satanist Aleister Crowley, do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. And Jesus' subversive qualification for anyone who would follow him reads like a banner over marriage itself. Anyone who wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. 
In uh, Mary Doria Russell's novel, The Sparrow, a character named Anne describes her experience of being married to the same man for decades like this. I have been married at least four times to four different men. They've all been named George Edwards, but believe me, the man who is waiting for me down the hall is a whole lot different animal from the boy I married back before there was dirt. Oh, there are continuities. He's always been fun, and he's never been able to budget his time properly. And well, the rest is none of your business. Cultures change. Empires rise and fall. Geology changes. Every 10 years or so, George and I have faced the fact that we have changed, and we've had to decide if it makes sense to create a new marriage between these two new people. A marriage covenant provides a place to apprentice Jesus to deny yourself, or in the words of Jesus, worst PR ever, come and die. And to enter into solidarity with God in the first place, I will be faithful to the covenant even in the face of change and sadness and trouble. And yet Jesus himself recognizes that covenants are often broken. If the covenant can be destroyed by, quote, sexual immorality, porneia, are there also other things which would merit divorce? The authors of the New Testament seem to believe so. Later, one master apprentice of Jesus called Paul will write a letter to a church in a city called Corinth in which he will join with Jesus in condemning divorce as not God's will. But then he goes on to add further scenarios in which divorce is advisable for disciples of Jesus or at least permissible. And it seems that as a result, there are a number of additional complexities that might merit divorce. And because Jesus is not making a detailed argument for divorce and remarriage in Matthew 5, he's rather commenting on a popular interpretation of Deuteronomy. And because Paul develops the list of permissible grounds for divorce later in the New Testament, there are at least three basic views of divorce and remarriage in the church. The first is that the Bible gives permission to divorce in the event of adultery or abandonment, which is something Paul mentions, but remarriage is forbidden. The second view is that the Bible gives permission to divorce in the event of adultery or abandonment, and remarriage is permissible. And the third view is that the Bible gives permission to divorce for a number of very serious reasons, and in each case, remarriage is permissible. Even so, disciples of Jesus understand marriage as a covenant, not a contract, and thus work tirelessly to repent and reconcile in order that the covenant would carry on. I believe, personally, that the third view is the correct one. Just, that's my take. Um, pastor and thinker John Stott, he famously refused to enter into conversations about divorce with couples who wanted to know his take on it or if they were struggling in their marriage until he had first spoken to the interested parties in two other subjects at length. One, the concept of marriage itself, what it is and what it isn't, and two, the idea of reconciliation. I think it's important for the disciple of Jesus to know and understand and remind one another again and again and again that divorce is simply not the heart of God, not God's will. And consequently, it should be the fundamental disposition of disciples of Jesus, particularly those in positions of any kind of leadership, to guide one another toward the reconciliation of husband and wife. After all, disciples of Jesus are to be known as agents of healing and reconciliation, married or single or remarried or somewhere in between, just as our teacher was and is an agent of reconciliation. And we achieve this by living uh, in step with the Spirit, self-denial for the good of the other. And even so, we recognize the brokenness in both ourselves and those around us. 
Covenants are sometimes broken, and there is healing and forgiveness and redemption in Jesus. Now, before we end tonight, I have a couple of thoughts. The first is that um, for those of you in the room this evening who feel as though this teaching is not exactly for you, perhaps you aren't married yet or, or you're not interested in being married, you're fine with singleness, that's your thing. Maybe you are married, but divorce really, frankly, seems terribly far-fetched at the moment. I want you to understand two things. The first being that there is something bigger at stake here. In both Jesus' teachings on lust and on divorce, he's actually addressing a problem with the human condition. In this case, it's actually the oppression of women. For Jesus, lust and divorce are both gestures of his culture's objectification of women, which is itself simply a byproduct of a bigger issue, which is the oppression of women. If you remember last week, Jesus' stark warning to flee from lust was directed, interestingly, specifically to his male disciples. You'll notice here this evening, again, Jesus speaks of a man divorcing his wife, making her the victim of adultery. And again, Jesus' Jesus' world was a patriarchal one in which women were understood to be subservient to men at best and objects or property at worst. So he warns his disciples that if they are to follow him, they can have absolutely no part in the objectification or the oppression of women. Women are not objects. They're not property. They are sisters who equally bear God's image. So Jesus condemns lust the objectification of women, and he condemns an easy divorce culture. I think we can all agree that these ideas are just as pressing tonight as they were when Jesus introduced them more than 2,000 years ago, in which lust and an easy divorce culture are the air that we breathe. And whether you're married right now, or you're single, or you're already remarried, if you follow Jesus, then you belong to the family of God. And as the family of God, we practice the way of Jesus together. We reject the objectification and oppression of women, and we reject an easy divorce culture together as the family of God. I rarely officiate weddings myself. Um, One reason for that is that I'm not good at it, frankly, really bad at it. Um, I think one reason is due largely to the very dry manner in which I joke, so I'm told my audience sometimes struggles to understand why I intend to be funny. Uh, It's taken most of you more than a year to figure it out, and it seems like half of you still have no idea. Um, So I'm going to begin to suggest helpful clues. When I travel and speak elsewhere, I just tell people that a long stare indicates a punchline. Usually with one person in particular, Bennett. Did you like that? You are now the subject of the long stare. Another reason is that I always wear the same clothes. It's this. And I don't like spending money on clothes, so if you don't think this looks right for your wedding, sorry. Um, another reason <laughs> that I'm, the, the real reason that I'm more discriminating about officiating weddings is because I believe marriage is something that should be born in and should grow up in the context of community. And I'm sure many of you have heard that old idiom, you know, about the way that it takes a village to raise a child, which is true. The same can be say, said of preserving a marriage, I think. And when a marriage arrives at an impasse, or a treacherous road, or a tumultuous season. It is the family of God who comes around those covenant people in order to carry burdens, and serve, and sacrifice, and fight to preserve the fragility of the covenant. I've seen some of you do this already, even in the short time that we've been a church. Some Van City communities I know have endured particularly trying seasons when married couples in their midst begin to navigate disaster. And though 
in the brokenness of our fallen world, the outcomes are sometimes not what we pray for. I have seen communities fight for their brothers and their sisters and fight for the marriage as though it was their own. And it is a beautiful thing. And maybe you're here this evening, and for you, divorce is a very real possibility that's looming ominously in the dis distance. Maybe it's something that was never even close to something that could possibly uh, come into your mind, and now it pops up every now and then. What would that be like? And the plea for you and your community this evening is to fight for the covenant. Marriage, uh, I think, is easily among the most misunderstood and painfully misrepresented premises in our culture. Uh, we tend to use exclusively hyperbolic language to describe marriage, depicting it as either endlessly beautiful or endlessly difficult and nothing in between or at the very least both concurrently at all times. And it's true that, that marriage is often beautiful. Sometimes it's really ugly. It's true that uh, sometimes marriage is exciting. Sometimes it's very ordinary. Marriage is often difficult. Sometimes marriage is really, really easy. And often it's neither of those things. Uh, it won't save your life, and it certainly doesn't have to ruin your life. Marriage really, in essence, is a micro-community. It is a man and a woman who can consciously pledge to share their lives, serving and sacrificing for one another in the process. Sometimes that's awesome, sometimes it's bad, sometimes it's really hard, sometimes it's really easy, and sometimes it's just there. And as I mentioned earlier, if Abby and I opted for divorce when we were in the face of seemingly unsurmountable obstacles, we would have divorced many times over at this point. Remembering the covenant, frankly, is really easy when things are beautiful and romantic and happy, which they often are. When things are none of the above, then you have to knowingly and with great resolve remember and hold to the covenant. Perhaps others of you here tonight have either already endured divorce yourself or you've endured the aftermath of divorce. To you, I want to say that divorce is not the unforgivable sin, and you are not ruined, you are not tainted, you are not unforgiven in the eyes of God. But you understand that the breaking of a covenant does damage you more than anyone. You understand that it causes pain and that there are consequences, regardless of who is or isn't at fault. And maybe there's healing work to be done there, repentance and restoration. Maybe you've already walked that difficult road of healing and repentance and restoration. And now yours is a wisdom badly needed for young, younger couples among us. And the plea for you is to steward that wisdom well. Part of what it means to practice the way of Jesus is to recognize how beautifully unique the way of Jesus is in a culture and a world often set against it. And I am absolutely in no way talking about imposing our ethics on the host culture. I'm not commenting in any way on how the state should approach marriage or how the church should fight to orient the culture that does not follow Jesus. In the words of Paul, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? But within the church, within this small creative minority of disciples, we are learning and choosing to live a different way. And interestingly, conversations around misogyny and feminism and concepts of marriage and its legislation are all pre prevalent in the culture at the moment. I think any of us realize that. And interesting and relevant though they may be, ours is a conversation about the way of Jesus, not about legislation or politics per se. And so we reject the objectification of and oppression of women upon the teachings of Jesus our King. We honor and celebrate the equality of women made in God's image upon the teachings of Jesus, who is our master and king. Within the church, 
we uphold and fight for and preserve the covenant of marriage, not imposing our ethic on the outside culture, but embodying an alternative society within. And when brokenness finds us, when covenants are destroyed, when we miss the heart of God, we repent or we turn around. We come around one another as the family of God to work for healing and restoration and reconciliation. This, I think, bears repeating. A lesson equally viable for man and woman, married or divorced or single. So may we learn to live the call of Jesus, our King. With that in mind, would you guys pray with me?